and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I'm your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is kind of an outlier. This is one, not the type of movie I tend to do on this show because it's not like a pithy little comedy or some obscure horror movie. This is a kind of a uh, an epic, sprawling drama. And uh, I'm trying to think if I've even done a movie like this before, and I don't think I have. So again, this might be a first on the show because it's very complex, long, uh uh, complicated drama and the movie I'm talking about is the 2003 Tom Cruise movie The Last Samurai a uh, movie that was fairly popular at the time but it seems to have pretty much just dropped off the face of the earth after that so we're gonna delve into why I think people should know this movie and respect it and uh, I have a very special guest for this one um, people who know the TV show Survivor will know this guy you uh, you've seen him he's been on several times he's very very uh, entertaining, eccentric, one of my all-time favorite players. Uh, people who don't know him, uh, you, you're in for a treat. This guy always has something interesting to say, and he and I have quite the back history. And I will just uh, welcome him by name. Welcome to the show, Coach Benjamin Wade. Thank you. Great to be here. Epic, epic times await us. Now, uh, this is weird because most of the time I will just uh, call my host by their first name. But if I'm calling you Benjamin, not only you're gonna you're gonna kick my ass, but that's not how people know you. So it'll be weird that I'm calling you Coach. But why don't you explain to people, Coach, what you do, who you are, and we'll try to be as brief as possible because I know you could do this for probably 30 minutes if I asked you to. Yeah, I've been uh, well. I've been a college professional amateur coach for the last 22 years of, of soccer. And so I actually was given that moniker when I was in college, and uh, uh, it's stuck with me ever since. I went on the show Survivor, and, you know, Jeff Probst, who was the host of the show, asked me, well, you know, what do you want to be called, Ben or Benjamin? And I said, man, my mom doesn't even call me that. Call me coach. And so the name stuck. Everybody called me that when I was out there, as well as the Dragon Slayer, which ties in a little bit to the last samurai movie that we'll be talking about. I, I conduct a symphony in Northern California, I used to be a professional kayaker and soccer player myself. So I've done quite a few things in life, but being a coach in life, being a coach to my three children, being a coach and a mentor to uh, the students that I teach on and off the field, that's just kind of is uh, my personification of who I am. Yeah, thank you for that, because I'm, I'm really trying to get across your TV persona to people who might not know you. And again, for people people who don't know Survivor, this guy is like the, I'm sure I'm just kissing your butt here, Coach, but you're like the greatest character in Survivor history, my personal favorite. So I know you love hearing that, right? I do, yes. More, more, more. Shower me with this. Flattery, flattery will get you everywhere. Well, you know, the thing is, is that if you just take a second and, you know, Google coach the dragon slayer and just pick one of the clips doesn't matter what you pick and you'll see that i'm a very different person and very different character the reason why survivor and the camera liked me so much is that i wasn't just a brainiac and i'm not a brainiac or i wasn't just a nerd or uh alpha male or um you know a soccer dude or you know, I was all of those things, as well as being a philosopher, a poet, a Qigong, Chongron, Tai Chi fusion master. And I was just out there, you know, being a beautiful, not endearing, but sometimes foolish, but over the top character, because it was able to tap into different parts of my natural personality. I'm eclectic. I dress a little bit different than most people. I talk different. I quote Nietzsche and Martin Luther King in the same breath and oftentimes get those quotes wrong. However, I put that and weave that into the fabric of who I am and who I want to be. Like Don Quixote, I see myself as who I would like to be instead of how I actually am. That's a great description. I actually love that. Um, and just to get across to people who don't know Coach, just the most over-the-top character on Survivor. And again, we draw the distinction between the person and the character on Survivor, right? Is that fair, Coach, that the, the way they edited you and portrayed you on the show, you were so much larger than life, such a, 
such a weird, odd, colorful cartoon figure. And again, that's not who you are, but this is what people would know you from from TV, right? Right. I mean, it was a, a great chance to to just jump into an imaginary world. I mean, why do we watch movies? Because we want to escape, right? We don't. I mean, people don't just go out to a theater and pay good money for documentaries. That's when you're sitting at home and you want to learn about something or you got an hour to kill that you'll watch a documentary. Why do we read books? Why do we get on our phones? Why do we watch movies? You know, why do we play video games? Because we're trying to escape, if just for a minute, the world that we're in. And going out on Survivor, I learned early on that the editors wanted to take me somewhere because I did have those multiple sides to my personality and my past. And so when I saw that what they wanted, it was so amazing for me for 39 days and, you know, however I did 97 days total to escape reality. And the thing is, is that parts of the Dragon Slayer are who I am. It's just that I was able to press the boundaries and stretch the boundaries of my normal personality that's already eclectic and, and to actually go and to jump into another character. And it was almost like a, an RPG game in real life. I mean, it was just amazing. And I could see every time I would zing some golden nugget their way, their eyes would get bigger and the producers would be like, wow, you know, this is going to not be on the cutting room floor. And I could see what they wanted. And so I kind of morphed into this larger than life character. I mean, I'm larger than life in real life, I think, just because that's who I am. But but out there, I was even able to go a step beyond. Okay, and again, I, I don't want to get too far into Survivor because this really isn't a Survivor podcast, but I just want to get across to people who how this ties into this episode. Like, when you go on the show, they're not really interested in just you being yourself. They kind of want you to play an archetype or a character, and they want you to take your personality traits and kind of amplify them, right? So you can be edited better on TV. Is that a safe way to say it? Yeah, you know, everybody always asks me, well, how do I get on Survivor? And they'll send me a tape and it's just garbage. They're doing challenges or I can eat bugs. They don't care about that. They care about different people. And I, I can remember going through casting that when I went through the final interview, the person who was like my casting agent or whatever, I mean, she was really pushing me to go forward. She came and asked me right after I met Mark Burnett and Jeff Probst and everybody, and she said, how did it go? And I said, yeah, it went great. And she asked me to give a detailed description. And I gave a detailed description of people's reactions, the nodding, the laughing, the serious, the this. And, and she was like, oh, good. She was like, you know, really, I didn't think you'd be cast on the show. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, because you don't fit into any category. There's the nerd, there's the jock, there's the beautiful person, there's the young person, there's the old person. The, there are the ethnic people. She was like, you didn't fit into any of those categories. You're like an anomaly all by yourself. And it was true. She was very afraid that I wasn't going to get cast, but they did. And I think that they latched onto that. And I think you can see a difference in their casting from the first season I was on after that season where everybody was like WTF with coach. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? I hate him. I love him. You know, that polarizing effect. Then they started looking for those people. You saw Russell come out the next season. You saw Philip come out a couple of seasons after that. Years later, you see Tony, you see Dom. And they're, and so they're looking for those people that are really just outside the box. It can be larger than life that they can frame the season on. Yeah, and, and again, Coach and I have a long history because I write about Survivor and I tend to pick out comic moments and kind of try to amplify them. And as Coach is one, one could easily... One would say mock sometimes. Maybe he and I may have crossed paths. But again, we've become friends and we've known each other. And I really like knowing you outside the show because you are very complex. You always have something interesting to say. And that actually ties right into our movie here, The Last Samurai, because you're the one who specifically requested this one for staff picks. And you had told me this is like the movie you watch to come up with your survivor character, correct? It was among... Other things, this had a huge impact on my life. I mean, not just saying that, you know, movies, great movies are movies that you watch and resonate within you day after day after day. And sometimes months and years after you watch, you'll be just minding your own business and a scene from a movie will come in and, and touch your heart or touch your mind. And so those are the kind of movies that I like. 
And so The Last Samurai had a profound impact on my life. Memoirs of a Geisha and The Last Samurai, both watched within six months, really moved me in in several ways and definitely had an impact on how I view myself and kind of how I view other people and also the movie itself and who I want to become. Yeah. Now, did you see this movie in a theater? Is this one you caught like when it came out? Yes. I've always been fascinated with Japanese history and the samurai. You know, you just look at the entire culture of the samurai, those that are servants, but masters at what they do. They're serving the emperor. They're serving, you know, their country. But it's literally they will eat shit and die before they will dishonor themselves, right? I mean, it's, it's, their, it's their highest calling. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter, you know, how, how you live your life except for you do it with honor and you fall on your sword in order to preserve that honor. I mean, to me, it was just so mind-blowing to see it on the big screen and to really capture it. It's one thing to read, you know, and you can read and your imagination is there, but I literally watched this movie thinking, what would I have done if I were back in those days? Would I have been as great as they were to have a culture, to have, you know, a, a mindset, to just give away everything in order to preserve your honor and, to, you know, preserve the honor of your emperor, even when the emperor is weak and, uh, unable to control the country and all of his minions around the emperor are controlling the, the, the future state of Japan, you know, what's going on. And yet you still say, I am committed to this code. It's a little bit like, you know, the, the old chivalry knights that was based on the French poem, the Chanson de Roland. And that was something that also had an impact on me because you're reading these, you know, this code and these regulations of these people that have gone generations before you and how they live their lives to keep themselves kind of on that straight and narrow, a higher calling, if you would. Okay. Yeah. Now, now this is not a movie, I'll flat out admit, this is not one that I saw in the theater at the time. And I've said before, we had small kids between 2000 and 2005. So I didn't see a lot of movies. So this is one that kind of falls right in my black hole that I missed and I wasn't around. So I, when you had suggested it for the show, I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. And obviously I know anybody who knows Survivor knows that, you know, you came up with this larger than life honor, you know, strength above everything else. So it was kind of based on this whole code from this movie and so i i had watched this movie and i'm thinking okay well i wasn't sure i would have a whole lot to say about it because it's you know a big long epic but i was surprisingly pretty moved by this movie and i was like that was a really good movie and then i looked around and i realized like hardly anybody has written anything about the last samurai there's hardly any comments about it any reviews about it nowadays although what's really interesting is there's a lot of and you'll see this now where People, they take this trope, like the white man goes to a different culture and becomes like their savior or something. And so a lot of people take offense at this this movie. They think it's Tom Cruise going to Japan and becoming a samurai. But that's actually not what the movie is. And that's one thing I really want to get across to people. If you think this is one of those, like, quote-unquote, white savior movies, that's not true at all. The Last Samurai refers to this character in the movie, uh, what's his name, Katsumoto. And that's not Tom Cruise at all. It's the other guy is the main star here. Absolutely. You know, you, you, you have, if I can just ex, ex, expand on that a little bit, mm -hmm. um, you know, it is a very um, tear-jerking movie that has so many layers. And I think that that's what I, I liked about it. If you want to look at Japanese history, when they were on the cusp of changing kind of from the old ways into the new ways, and we see that with indigenous cultures all around the world, that you have their old customs and culture and that and that's that's being washed especially you know at the turn of the century coming into the 1900s you look at the american indians um and you see that that loss of culture and you see that that loss of a way of life and the poignant thing about the last samurai is that it has so many different layers if you want to really look up close and personal about the history and how japan changed from being a uh, uh you know, country of the dark ages to leaping forward and the cost that that took, mm -hmm. then it's a great film to watch. If you want to see the dichotomy of, you know, brother fighting against brother and how it tore 
the Japanese apart. And we can get into that in a little bit. It's a great movie to watch. If you want to see the customs and the armor, very historically accurate of the samurai and kind of their way of life, uh, it's a great movie. If you want to see a love story of, you know, and I'm not talking about Tom Cruise and the lady that was in the movie. I'm talking about the love story of becoming brothers mm-hmm. of of Tom Cruise and, you know, basically the, the samurai, the Lord, you know, uh, Wontanabe, it was, it's, that's a good, that it's got it there. So there's so many different layers of this movie that we can get into. I think that that's, that's what appealed to me as well as the unwritten or written code of ethics, honor, integrity, sacrifice your life for the greater good was very profound. Okay, yeah, and we'll we'll go through the plot here in a second for people who don't know this movie, but I do, I want to follow up on what you just said. Like, if you, you, I would assume, are a student of history, you seem like someone who reads a lot, who knows their history. I have read varying claims on this movie, like some people say it's so historically accurate to that time, it absolutely nails what Japan was like right around early 1900s, late 1800s. But I've also heard other people say that it really romanticizes the samurai and builds them up into something that they actually never were. And it like it makes them it like this is like the idealized version of samurai, maybe not the the realistic version of samurai. Now, I don't know. I haven't read books on this stuff. This is all new to me, this whole era of history in Japan. So I'm curious. Have you read about this history? How how accurate from what you know is this movie? I think it's I think it's very accurate. I don't I mean, you know, obviously we're going to romanticize the past in general, mm-hmm. but I think that it I think that it's very accurate. Okay. I have read so much um history of of Japan. You know, there's a there's a great book out there that's called The Tale of Haiki and it's a book that's that's written and it's been translated it's basically an epic account that's around let's say 1300s 1330 and it's the struggle between these ancient clans and you know the the great genpei war and and it's like basically like it's like the japanese iliad and it's been translated into english half a dozen times first time was in the early 1900s um and so i've read that complete book and you know it's fantastic and a lot of what they're they're talking about in here it's not a you know you talk about a romanticized you know version you look at beowulf and you look at the movie that was done to that pretty romanticized man this stuff is straight out of the history book and so i really appreciated the authenticity of it i've seen samurai uh, armor i've tried to purchase samurai armor but it's so bloody expensive uh, there's a great dealer down in san diego i've been to kyoto and the problem is, is that all that stuff has been, you know, d- taken up and, you know, either refurbished or dusted off and put in museums. And then the other half people are trying to buy in private collections. And it's literally, you know, $100,000 to get a, an authentic samurai full outfit. Now, I do have a pair of battle axes. I'm just going to tell you a price, $55,000, okay? I've got a pair of authentic samurai battle axes. I'll take a picture, send it to you. It's guys, they were buried with a samurai, and they've got this dragon that comes down, and that's the grip. It's got, it's, they're solid bronze, and it actually has green oxidization on the, anyway, they're two-hand battle axes. They are sweet. Anyway, so the antlers on the helmets and all of that, totally authentic, the way they lived the way they were separate from other people, but still immersed in society, you know, accurate. So people that are claiming that it's not accurate and romanticized, well, obviously it's a movie, so it's going to be slightly romanticized. But I liked it because first and foremost, um, it was historically as accurate as you can get, because guess what? You weren't there. I wasn't there. Unless you got a time machine, you're not going to be there. So we don't really know. But from what I've read, and especially everybody should go out there and look up the tale of Heike, because it's something that's uh, that will give you a great, great glimpse into that lost culture. Okay, and just to back up what you said, yeah, we weren't there. Like, nobody knows how accurate this movie is. But I will say, in my research, I don't know if you even know this, that this movie was like a pretty big hit in America. Like, it went over pretty well here. It went over really well in Japan. Like, they loved it. It made more money over there than in the U.S., which is crazy. Because, again, the U.S. market is so much bigger. So, just to back up some of the authenticity, like, yeah, not all the details will be very, like, 100% correct. But I do, I, I 
was reading some reviews that said like a lot of the Japanese critics and cultural critics in Japan just absolutely loved how much effort was put into making the language sound accurate, making like just the word choices and the inflections all would have been perfect for that era. So again, so to back up the question of authenticity, people in Japan really liked this movie. It was a big hit over there. Yeah, I, you know, let me just say something about that. I, I think that's very impressive. I didn't know that. I think it's very impressive, not only for what you just said, mm -hmm. but a lot of times we're ashamed of our past. And so, you know, for example, I've had a bunch of soccer players from Germany, and they hate it in my music history classes when I talk about Hitler or, you know, like Wagner was, you know, his music was very revered in the Third Reich. And so when I talk about that, you can tell that they're very uncomfortable. And it's just like, you know, I don't know how other Americans feel. I'm part Native American Indian, but I don't know how other Americans feel. But when I see movies of, you know, the destruction of the American Indian culture and, and, and how they were treated, you know, I'm not embarrassed by it. You know, I, I, I like to see that because it, it reminds people of where we were and, and what we've done poorly. And every country out there has done it. So I like it doubly because they're able to look past some of the sins of the past. Mm -hmm. you know, that they've had, and they're able to, to relish this movie for the piece of art and the recognition of history that it, that it, that it really was. Yeah, and, and here's a quick little follow-up to that that makes me laugh, is that as popular as this movie was in Japan, as hard as they worked to make it look authentic and make the setting and everything just perfect, it was actually filmed in New Zealand, not Japan. <laughs> I knew, I knew that. That's really funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> New Zealand to get credit. Listen, I, you know, I got to go live in New Zealand for a summer or something because I've been there, but it was just like a stopover as I was going to Samoa. But right, I mean, Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. The Last Samurai. I mean, it must be just an amazingly epic country in backdrop. Oh, yeah, and they cut all these amazing deals to filmmakers to come there and film. So, yeah, they're like this wonderful film economy nowadays. And apparently from this movie, they have an amazing Bushido code there. So that's good. The Bushido code of, of New Zealand. There you go. Love it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So let's get into the movie here. We're, I'm not going to get real super picky about this one where we go over every little detail just because I would like people to experience this one for themselves. And again, it's, it's, it's like not a comedy where there's a billion one-liners left and right. This is more about a feeling, an emotion. Um, is there anything else I'm leaving out before we dive into the plot here? No, it's good. I like it. Okay. So again, this is the story of... You know, ostensibly, you think it's Tom Cruise. This is a Tom Cruise starring vehicle. You think he's the last samurai, but it's really not. It's really a vehicle for this Japanese actor, uh, Ken Watanabe, I think his name is. Yeah, is, it, is that? I thought it was Watanabe. Watanabe? Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> I'm not. It's, I'm not even going to try. But I think it's Watanabe. That's my guess. But so okay. he was a very famous Japanese actor of his era, completely unknown in America. Nobody knew who he was. He just man, did that's crazy. Man, I, I, I love him. I've seen him in so many movies because I've watched movies. You know, I've watched Japanese movies. I've, anyway, he is the man. I love this guy. Yeah, of yeah. course you know him. Like you, nobody else is out there buying samurai armor from San Diego. <laughs> that's really funny. I got a picture of 100-year Kyoto on my Twitter with me and my son. Go check that out. Yeah, they're 120 years old each. Boom. Bought that from the guy in San Diego. Please continue. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, so this Watanabe guy was very well known in, ja in Japan, but he'd never been in a U.S. movie before. So they basically wrote this role for him as the most esteemed and noble and respected samurai, uh, Katsumoto. And what he he was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor in this movie, and he didn't win. And I, it's if you go Google his name, just Google Ken Watanabe Oscar snub, it's one of these roles that to this day people are still pissed that he didn't win the Oscar for because he's so good in this movie yes so believable I mean his stature mm -hmm. his presence his actions his I mean it's amazing yeah amazing. yeah and and again, he is the last samurai. That's the thing that people misinterpret. This is a love letter to this guy, Ken Watanabe, and his character, Katsumoto. And Tom Cruise is really just a spectator. He's really just there writing a journal and explaining the samurai culture. So that's the one thing I want to get across to people, that this is really the spotlight of this amazing Japanese actor who this was literally his first American movie and the first time anybody but Coach knew about him. 
Well, and you know, another thing is about the Tom Cruise thing. If you like Tom Cruise, go watch the movie because you'll, you'll like it. But if you don't like Tom Cruise, go watch the movie because you're going to love it. You know, this is, I mean, one of Tom Cruise's greatest performances. You know, he is complete. I, I actually, you know, this is really funny. When you said Tom Cruise, you know, da 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 da. When you first mentioned his name, I don't even remember him being in that film because he's so believable. So anyway, I loved it on 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 all accounts. But Katsumoto, who is this lord of the samurai, who is the, who is the last samurai, is just so regal and so epic in in everything that he does. Yeah, and my wife and I have talked about that a lot over the years, how good Tom Cruise is in movies, and you don't actually notice it. Like, he's got to be one of the most uh, overlooked or under-respected mm-hmm. actors of the past 40 years, because, like, he's good in everything. And, like, yeah, he's not going to win an Oscar for every role, but he's really good at portraying emotion in these types of movies. So, yeah, it's just, again, I just, there's almost not a bad note in this movie. Everything's so strong. Um, okay, so let's get into the start here. So it starts with, it's a story of a Civil War soldier named Nathan Algren, played by Tom Cruise. He was a former Civil War soldier, and they were in 1876 here, so we're a good, a little bit right after the Civil War here. He's a surviving hero, and he's an American hero. He wanders around the country, and basically he is being paid by the Winchester Rifle Company to hawk their product, to advertise these rifles. And he's just kind of a, a sad person. He's kind of a, a washed up, drunk, former Indian fighter. Like he has killed many Indians in his day. He was an, a, a Civil War soldier. But he has all these these nightmares and stuff and all these memories of all these horrible atrocities he's done over the over his life. And now he's just a drunk that wanders around and sells rifles for the most part. Yeah, and it's interesting because that when I that was it captivated me in the very beginning because here's a guy that was once great and the culture's moved on right america's also in their own upheaval and their their changing of culture but but life has moved on and what he's good at is no longer applicable and it really reminded me of when i was you know i was a big kayaker and i was kayaking all over the world and i stopped doing that and it's like i wasn't i was not i was no longer great like what where can you use those skills and so i had a really difficult time this was right before I got into coaching. I had a really difficult time just trying to re-identify myself. And so I think, you know, you a lot of people can relate to that, being programmed to do something their whole lives, achieving something, and then basically saying, well, what's next? And then not fitting in and then really struggling with, well, what are you supposed to do now with your life? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing about his character, not only that, is the move the the world has moved on past him, but he... He lived through a very significant historic event, and this is one thing that's very prominent in the story here, is that he was a captain under General Custer. So the last thing that this guy Algram did, probably before he left the service, was he was under Custer. He was there, or that somehow, some he wasn't in Little Bighorn, but he knows all about it. He was involved with it somehow, where he has been on these Indian killing raids. He saw the foolishness of this man charging up against 5,000 Indians and getting slaughtered, and he knows what a complete waste of life it was and waste of time it was. But that will become a big thing in this movie, this Little Bighorn tie-in. Yep, absolutely. There's so many different tie-ins from so many different angles. Yeah, and what's I'll just jump ahead a real uh, just real quick here. I don't want to get too much into it, but what's fascinating is that like we as Americans all see, you know, Little Bighorn as this this foolish, you know guy got wrapped up in pride and went up against this huge mass of Indians and got killed and it's like what an idiot. But like at the time in the in the 1800s that wasn't how it was seen. It was kind of romanticized. America saw him as this hero. And what's interesting in this movie is that's how the samurai will see Custer as well. Like, wow, he he had 200 men and he went up against 2000. What an amazing noble warrior. Exactly. And Tom Cruise will be like, "No, he's not noble, but the samurai don't see it that way. They just see it from the few against many." So that'll come back later. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't I didn't grab that correlation. <laughs> Okay, so Algram is just this drunk, washed-up, Civil War hero, Indian killer, and he is called in for a meeting that apparently there's this Japanese businessman, this man named Mr. Omura, has come to the U.S., and he is there on the business of the emperor. 
And the emperor is, you know, the, the, the god on earth of Japan. He's the leader, the undisputed leader, and he is trying to modernize his country. They're trying to go from this feudal samurai, you know, night world into the modern western world, and they need some U.S. soldiers to go over there and kind of train their army on how to do this. So this is how Algrim will get sucked into Japan here. Yep. So the, 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 this is exactly what was happening, right? Like, maybe you can explain this. You know Japanese history better than I do. The the role of the emperor, like, there's no equivalent to that in U.S. history, right? Because he's like he's like an embodiment of God on Earth to Japan, right? Especially in this era. Yeah, exactly. You know, <clears> that it was a divine right where you know the emperor. It was a bloodline, obviously, and there were times where emperors were assassinated so that somebody's uncle or brother or somebody could step into the line, but they were revered. You know, you got to think back on Japanese culture. Okay. If you're a Lord, then when people come in the door, you know, they get on their knees and they don't even look at you. They, you, you know, they're not even allowed to look at you if you're less than a Lord, unless they ask you to sit up and look at them and speak face to face. If somebody comes in, even like a wife comes in and she has a bowl over her head, I'm doing it myself. I'm acting it out. I actually do this with my wife sometimes when I make coffee for her in the morning and I'll prostrate myself on my knees, true story. And I'll like put the cup over my head without making eye contact with her. And uh, it's very interesting that I'll do that. And, and she'll be like, you know, oh, you know, stop doing that. But it's fascinating because in those days in Japan, you know, people were very much in the hierarchy. And so if you walk into a room and don't even make eye contact and hold a bowl over your head for the great Lord that's sitting in there in the room with all of his entourage and samurai behind hidden screens, then how much so are you going to do it to the emperor? The emperor, you couldn't even get in the same room with the emperor, right? Mm -hmm. if, you, if you were a Lord, you couldn't get in the same room. But if you were the top of your you know, of your clan, you would get on your knees and prostrate yourselves before the emperor if you were even granted audience with him. And the emperor wouldn't even speak to people. The emperor, by the way, I'm going to just say this one last thing, wasn't even allowed to walk oh, really? until they were eight years old or something like that. You know, and, and especially we're talking about, you know, medieval Japan, the emperor couldn't even walk. He was carried in a uh, palakin, whatever they call it. Uh, called it in those days because they were afraid that his holy feet would touch the solid ground. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, the emperor his again, his, when he makes a decree in Japan, it is unassailable. Nobody can question it. It has come down from God himself. So the emperor has decided they're going to modernize the country. And what's happened is there is a feud now going on in Japan where you have these these elite guard of the emperor, the samurai, who have been for thousands of years have been trained to defend the honor of Japan, defend the emperor. They do not like that Japan is being modernized and is going into the modern era, that Western values are being introduced to Japan. So what has happened is we have a rebellion going on in Japan where the emperor's army is fighting against the samurai who and both sides think they are guarding the honor of Japan. And that's what kind of gets tricky about this movie is that everybody thinks they are defending the emperor and defending the country. And that's what happened when you get in that situation where everybody is convinced they are right and everybody is fighting on the side of good, it can get very bloody. And that is why Captain Algram is being called in Japan here to basically support the emperor's army and put down the rebellion of these, as they would be called, these traitorous samurai that are fighting our army. Yeah, it's very interesting, right? Because, you know, automatically in life, modernization in the last 150 years has become kind of the charging cry from the industrial revolution on. And so all of us are like more, more technology, easier life, easier cell phones. And yet when we watch the movie, we feel ashamed at that modernization of Japanese culture. Who's right? Who's wrong? Now we'd say, well, you know, go forward, you know, towards modernization. But when you watch the movie, you really, your, your, your pity falls on this old culture. And it's interesting because late in the movie, the, the emperor says something to the effect of, you know, he's, he's dreamed of a unified Japan. He mm -hmm. says one that's strong and independent and modern. And you're, and you're watching him give this speech. And, you know, this is a, a, a man child that, has hardly taken a few steps in his life and you know he's been coddled and fed and he's extremely weak and a samurai can you know chop off his head 
you know, with a little, with his little finger, but he's talking about how he wants a country that's strong and modern and they, he wants railroads and Western clothing. And, you know, you're just sitting there thinking, you know, you weak little piece of crap, you know, you're the opposite of what your country should be, but that's what they want. They want it to be modernized and Algren and the samurai, you know, unfortunately, you know, continue to follow the emperor, even though he's trying to basically destroy them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Tom Cruise goes over to Japan and he gets there for the first time. He goes into Yokohama Harbor, if I recall. And he just sees right off the bat that Japan in 1870 is just this contradiction. It's all the old world meeting the new world. And like all the civilians have this, this, uh, affinity. They want Western products. They want Western clothes, but all the old timers and all the government want traditions to be there. So it's just, it's a country that's just fighting itself at this point in history. It's right there on the cusp of it can go either way. We can just kind of go the same way we've always gone, or we can go to this radical change into the West. And so Algren is thrown right into the middle here. And this is where he meets his army and he meets the emperor. And again, he's not, like you said, he's not even allowed to speak to the emperor, right? They have to do it through a translator. Yes. And the, the emperor is fascinated by the fact, and again, this comes up over and over in the movie, that the emperor is fascinated when he learns that Tom Cruise has been fighting Indians. He's like, tell us about these these American Indians. We have heard so much about them. And it's funny how you get this parallel over and over in the movie, the samurai versus the Native Americans, how just, you know, they had a very simple, straightforward way of life in it. It was taken from them and they just fought and they fought with bravery and without fear. And even in Japan, they've heard about this. And so this is all they want to talk about. So, again, this this will come up over and over in the movie, how uh, feudal Japan equals Native Americans, basically. Exactly. Yep, exactly. And we're sitting here, you know, pissing on our culture, and then we're shaming the Japanese for, do <laughs> for doing the same thing. It's very much, I'm telling you, it's very much a movie that you can watch. Look in the mirror of American history, and you can look in the mirror at yourself and question the, the choices, you know, the decisions that you're making. It's, it's fascinating. Okay, so this is where we learn about the leader of the samurai. And again, this is his movie. Don't even get tricked into thinking this is a Tom Cruise movie. This is this guy, Katsumoto. He is the leader of the samurai. He is the most respected man in Japan after the emperor, obviously. And everyone knows him. And it's like so odd that he has become the one they're fighting because he is like the symbol of Japan. And Tom Cruise is trying to wrap this around his head. Like we're fighting this guy. But he's so respected and everyone loves him. So Tom Cruise immediately starts reading books about the samurai. Why? Why is this guy so respected? What makes him so special? And he's got to find out what makes him special real quick because this army is suddenly thrust into battle. Like Tom Cruise has been training them. They're not ready. They don't really get how rifles work because they just use swords and bows and arrows usually. But this army is immediately thrust into a battle with the samurai like a couple weeks after Algrim gets there. And uh, it's not going to go well for Captain Algrim's army. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. They get their butts handed to them. <laughs> yeah, and they get, again, they have, they have firearms and they have weapons. And the samurai don't use this. The samurai just ride around on horses and have swords and bows and arrows. And they completely wipe out the army of Japan. And this is where Algram ends up. Uh, basically, everybody in Algram's army gets slaughtered. They all get killed. Everyone's dead, basically, but Tom Cruise, Algram. And um, what happens here? I'm trying to explain this to people. This is an important scene. Um, what happens here, Coach? Give us, give us the, the battle where he's captured here. So it's really cool because, you know, it's, the, it's, it's really the first that you see of this, you know, there's this forest that you think is in Japan, but there's this forest and all of a sudden, through the mist, the samurai come riding, and they look like these mythical creatures, you know, that are coming out of like the age of the druids, and they've got antlers on their on their samurai helmets, and they're coming out of the mist, and it's just, you know, complete annihilation. You've got, you know, the the Japanese army that have these rifles; they're not ready. They're backfiring on them. You know, Tom Cruise is running around trying to you know, trying to rally the troops and to get some type of order uh, in the Japanese army. And they're just, they're just way overmatched. And so he ends up being uh, basically knocked senseless and he wakes up 
having survived like a near-death experience, and he wakes up in the samurai camp, which is like high up in the mountains. It's interesting because at this point in history, we both look back, and I always ask myself, you know, when John Smith was coming over here in Jamestown, why didn't we just absolutely waylay them and just annihilate all of the Europeans and the American Indians would would still be around? Probably not. But you look at this movie and you think, well, if the samurai had, had, had any sense whatsoever, they would have immediately rode to the palace and, and, and waylaid the emperor. But it was so much against their code that they can't do it. I don't know what the American Indians' problem was. I get up on a side note here. Anyway, so they capture him and they take him to their camp where Katsumoto is the lord of his domain and he's the lord of, of the samurai. And we, we come to believe that he's the, the lord. He's like the chief of of really most respected out of any samurai that's in Japan at that time. And Tom Cruise ends up finding himself in the hand of the enemy. Yeah, although you left out one part there that's really important to the story, that uh, Tom Cruise is surrounded by samurais at one point in, the, in the, the war, and he's about to be killed. But he just he takes this like a poleaxe, and he's just fighting off like seven, eight guys all at once, just basically like berserker strength, just because he has nothing to lose. And this is where Katsumoto sees the kind of fight that Tom Cruise has in him. And he's like, wow, this guy's a warrior. He's putting up a fight, even though he's clearly about to die. And even at one point, one of the samurais is standing above Tom Cruise about to stab him. And Tom Cruise sticks up this knife and stabs the guy in the neck, like as a last minute, just sign of defiance. You can't take me. I'm going to take one of you. And this is what Katsumoto was impressed by. He's never seen a Western fighter, an American fighter before. He's never seen someone in a cavalry uniform. He's never seen someone with this kind of fight. And so, by definition, the samurai would kill everybody. That's what you do. You kill your opponents. But he's so impressed by this strange foreigner who fights with, like, the courage of a Native American that he keeps him alive. And you get the sense it's the first time they've ever kept somebody alive. But he's just intrigued. He's like, who is this person? I would like to know who this warrior is. Mm-hmm. Great point. Yep. Great point. Okay, yeah, so, so Tom Cruise is, is sucked in and, and pulled in with the uh, the samurai, and basically they're up in the mountain camp, and they're there all winter, and the winter's about to come in Japan, and once that happens, no one can leave the village for like four or five months. So basically the big long stretch of this movie, like an hour and a half in the middle, is Tom Cruise being... He's a prisoner of the samurai, but they don't kill him. They want to learn who he is, and he learns who they are. And it's just, again, it's very Dances with Wolves, very Avatar, where you learn by living in the camp of the enemy how their world works, and you start to see the world from their perspective. Yep, and it changes his life. He comes from he, he goes from being this angry, belligerent, washed up, no purpose, you know, ex- Indian killer mm -hmm. to somebody who is really embraces, you know, this Bushido, which is basically Bushido is that that code of life that the samurai live by. And they're really all Japanese live by at that time that, you know, there is life in every breath that you walk the way of the warrior. And it's no coincidence that when I got on Survivor and I started really just immersing myself in that character that I was becoming, I was actually using some of these this vernacular, even though I didn't realize that I started talking about the way of the warrior and getting a warrior's alliance. And I wasn't even thinking about the last samurai, but that's how deeply it was, you know, embedded inside of me. So, so Tom Cruise sees that there's this Bushido, there's this code and that, that life is in every breath and that life can be beautiful as well as rugged and harsh. But that's, you know, that's what the samurai did. The samurai and even the knights, you know, they came up with this code. That's why they came up with that original code of chivalry, uh, whenever it was, 1300s, with that Chanson du Roland. They came up with things of give succor to women and to honor God and to do this. They put that code in there so that it wouldn't just be all about the bloodlust. It wouldn't just all be all about, you know, decapitating your enemy, but there had to be beauty among the ruggedness. Yeah, and that's something that comes up quite a bit during this section of the movie where Tom Cruise is with these, as he would call them, barbarians at the start, but he learns that they're not. Like, they, they consider themselves in service of the emperor, they're defending the country, and yes, they train for war, at least the men do, and even the, the boys do, they train for war most of the day, but he realizes when he's in this camp that they're not just warlike people, like... 
when he's talking to Katsumoto, Katsumoto will tell him, like, we, what we do in this village is like a man or a woman finds something that they want to pursue and they spend their entire life mastering that one skill. And whether it's war, whether it's sewing, art, dancing, it could be anything. That's, that's what the samurai do. They dedicate themselves to perfection and just the nobility of learning how it works and understanding how this works. And there's one quote in particular where Katsumoto says, you know, one, a man could spend his entire life trying to find the perfect flower blossom and it would not be a wasted life because he is, he is learning how they work. So this, it's just such an interesting perspective that Tom Cruise learns. And again, this, this, uh, actor Watanabe just is so good at getting through Katsumoto and how he works and how his, uh, his psychology and his philosophy works. So again, yeah, this is really the heart of this movie. There's, there's a lot of war in this movie, but it's this middle stretch where Tom Cruise meets the samurai and learns the Bushido code that is really special, I think. It's so profound. I mean, it really is. It's like to appreciate the beauty. It's so cool, right? To go from, I mean, here's one of the things, you know, you look at that, that story arc, Mm -hmm. you look at the character arc. It's what they love in survivor. It's what they love in any good film, any good book, excuse me. But you look at this washed up drunk that has no purpose. And then you have just the cinematography of this battle scene and these samurai that look like complete savages that come riding out of the mist. And then all of a sudden you just see all of this beauty. It's a great, you know, it's a great, like you said, hour, hour and a half interlude Mm -hmm. of beauty and culture and history and all of that rolled up into one. It's really just like the, you know, the director of this, and the screenplay writer just take us for a for a ride in a good way to go from you know the anger to the you know the physicality of war to just complete beauty and then they of course they bring us back to you know what it's all about is that transformation of the samurai culture ending and they have to do that through what they got to do that through blood and death yeah and that's really the last part of this movie. Again, I'm, we're skipping over a lot. There's a lot of good details here. I'd like you guys to learn and watch this movie for yourself. There's a whole subplot, like I said earlier, where, where Katsumoto still always talks about General Custer. What an amazing, noble warrior he was. And like, that's how he views the world. That is, that is the ultimate sign. If a man can face 200 enemies and die in battle, that is a very valid, noble death. And it's, it's called a good death. That's how the samurai would see that. So anyway, they will, they will all meet a good death unfortunately for us but kind of fortunately for them because as the winter ends the army comes out again to face them and at this point tom cruise is full-on sympathetic to the samurai he knows their world they've been nursing him back to health he's even staying at the the guy who he killed he's staying with the guy's wife which is just weird (laughs) like she was the one nursing him back to hell that's that's a hell of a good neighbor right there (laughs) that's no that's like that's like biblical right (laughs) <laughs> if you kill your wife, I mean, if you kill your brother, then you got to inherit the wife or something like that. It's almost <laughs> biblical. Yeah. Yeah. So Tom Cruise kills this guy and the entire guy's family nurses him back to health and becomes his best friend. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's full on samurai, really. At this point, he's a sympathizer. And here comes the Japanese army at the end of the uh, winter. And uh, and now they have even more modernized weapons. And this is the scene that I, I you even told me this before. The first time you watched this movie, how you cried, you wept where the army now has howitzers, which can fire like 200 rounds a minute, and that is way beyond the technology they had last year. And so the samurai are going to meet the howitzers, and it's going to be one final, basically, Custer's last stand battle with all these little band of samurais against the most modern army in the world, and it really is not pretty. It's horrible, actually. It's horrible because you watch, you know, these great warriors going into battle, continuing to run forward. I don't believe that there's any retreat. And it's just a it's just a complete loss. It's not just a loss of life, it's a complete loss of a way of life. Mm-hmm. And so watching it, man, I wept. I'm actually just, you know, thinking about getting ready for today and watching it again and then thinking about it now and quotes and it still it still tears me up because it was just such a loss of so many different things at the same time. And you're watching these noble people 
just being led to the slaughter. They know it's coming, and yet they're still riding into it. And, and probably, you know, one of the most difficult things to watch is the is the colonel, is the Japanese colonel mm-hmm. uh, in the in the army with the howitzers that are mowing them down. And his name is Omura, and you know he's just torn up about it. You can see he's just you know seeing his countrymen die, and it and it really bothers him. But he's still doing it because it's his duty. Wait, you're getting it mixed up. Omura is the the guy who brought in all the weapons. You're talking about the actual colonel. I'm pro- the guy, yeah, the guy who was sympathetic to the to Katsumoto, the guy who was sympathetic to the samurai. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's it's horrible. It's all these soldiers that were raised on the legend of the samurai and legends of Katsumoto, and they have to stand there and do their duty. As it's literally like, I mean, if you know the Civil War, you know uh, Pickett's Charge, where there's a big line of guns, and then all the rebels at the end are just running straight into it, thinking they're going to make a difference. But and that's the one in this version where it's like literally, yeah, these samurai charging headfirst into these howitzers, swords in the air, and just getting destroyed, getting torn apart, and it's the saddest scene. And again, this it's like the last 45 minutes of the movie. We're really jumping over a lot of scenes, but we kind of have a time limit here. I don't want to give you every detail, but yeah, that's just the last part of this movie where the samurai are destroyed. Basically, everybody but Tom Cruise is killed, and Katsumoto is killed. And Katsumoto and Algram have learned, they become brothers, and one of the, the most noble things a samurai can do is if one of them needs help dying, the other one must kill him. So Tom Cruise has to kill Katsumoto with his sword, run it through his belly, and Katsumoto is basically like, thank you, I've died a noble death. And it's just, I mean, it's a gut-wrenching uh, scene to sit through. It is, it is. But then there's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. When they have that last meeting with the emperor. Yeah, let me let me set that up and you can explain that. Um, earlier in the movie, before the final war, there's a scene where Katsumoto goes to the town council. He is given safe passage to meet the emperor. And he's basically saying, you know, my lord emperor, I am not holding up. I'm not holding arms against you. I'm fighting for the honor of Japan. If you wish me to stop or kill myself, just say the word and I will cut my own head off. And that's what Katsumoto says. And so the emperor has always been in this tough situation the entire movie where he wants to modernize. He doesn't want to piss off the samurai and he's just weak. He can't make a decision. And so what happens at the end of the movie is all the samurai have been destroyed and killed and it's just this horrible defeat. And this is like you said, the emperor finally stands up for himself at the end. Yeah, it's really cool. You know, Omura, who I said was a colonel, but he wasn't a colonel, but he's like under the colonel. But Omura, you know, he comes into the to the emperor and he's basically like everything I've done, I've done for my country. And the emperor is like, then if that's the case, you don't mind if we seize your family's assets and present them as a gift to the people. And Omura is like, you disgrace me. And, you know, the emperor says, if your shame is too unbearable, then I offer you this sword. And he holds out the sword for it and you know he's unwilling to commit uh seppuku which is like harry carry it's like you know you're going to fall on your sword and so he and he won't do it and so this omura who is you know in the army who obviously is grieved that he's killed all these samurai but he's done it under orders and so he feels justified he basically gets his come up and at the end and that's good to see and then of course you know tom cruise is there and he's obviously his body's wrecked from you know, surviving the surviving the Gatling guns, and he comes up, and and the emperor's like, basically, tell me how Kazumoto died, and this part even chokes me up when I talk about it now. And Tom Cruise says, "No, I will tell you how he lived," and I think that's just such a great mantra for all of us because, you know, how are we living? It's a challenge that that challenges me daily. How am I living? Not how I lived five years ago or what I did on Survivor a decade ago or kayaking wherever. It's what we're doing now that we live. Are we living our lives to the fullest? Are we taking advantage of everything? Are we, you know, when our kids are stressing us out, do we still take moments to just relish in the beauty of it? I do that every day. I I challenge myself. I challenge my family, my wife, because it's so easy to get caught up in the negative and the destruction that's happening on a daily basis in all of our lives. And it's like, stop and live life not how he died but but how you live it's super important to to have that at the forefront when we live yeah that is such a great quote and there's another one here i have circled and i know you're going to like this one too it's right before the final battle when this noble final samurai katsumoto is killed 
um, they're having a discussion and Tom Cruise is like, you know, I've had this horrible life. I've massacred Indians. I've been in the Civil War. I've killed people. It's horrible. I have all these terrible memories. I've done horrible things. And he's like, if I fight with you in this final battle against the Japan's army, like, will I be able to change my destiny? And so Tom Cruise says, uh, do you believe a man can change his destiny? And mm-hmm. uh, I, I forget which one of them says it, but the answer is, I believe a man does what he can until his destiny reveals itself. Yeah, now, uh, uh, just a little, um, let me give you a little uh, background on Japanese culture, because okay. that is a great quote. And actually, Katsumoto says it, and then I think that, that Tom Cruise responds to it and says, you can, you know, until he finds his destiny. So in the Japanese culture, it, it was huge about your destiny. And people would actually, you know, they had this old game of Go, they would call it in Japan. And it was a little bit like a very, very complex game of checkers with chess and a lot of strategy in it. And so, but the Japanese believe so much in destiny. In fact, they, they would feel that destiny would just play with you and they would, you know, you, you just were, could do nothing if your destiny were a certain fate. And they really believed in fate and destiny. And so they're actually going against that culture in that last minute that yes, you have your destiny, that a man goes where he goes, but then when he has his destiny, then he rides it till his death, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, just so many neat little lessons you can learn from this movie, and just so many, again, just the love that was put into this movie. It's so incredible, just the the the, the forethought and foresight, just the planning, the dialogue, the settings, the 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 dialogue for Katsumoto in particular. Whoever write this wrote the stuff for him is amazing because it's just so well done. And at the end of the movie, yeah, the emperor has learned that Katsumoto sacrificed his body against these howitzers to give up to to prove a point to say I will die for my country because my country is so important and the emperor is so important. And the emperor even snubs all technology at the end of the movie, all modernization. He says, you know, the Western world has no place here in Japan. We have our traditions and so that is what we will do so katsumoto dies but he does not die in vain that his lesson has been learned the old ways will still hold in japan for a while and then tom cruise kind of disappears and again just a hauntingly beautiful movie that i was shocked i didn't know about when it came out so i I really want to thank you for introducing me to this one great i hope it changed your life in some small way or at least made you think twice i mean because it did for me yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go like trying to buy fifty thousand dollar battle axes anytime soon, but <laughs> <laughs> it really makes you think about destiny and what your purpose is, and just what the whole purpose of life is, and how beauty works. Like there is beauty to be found in everything, and I think that's kind of the one of the lesser messages from this movie. But again, yeah, it just it's a movie that really makes you think much more so than most of the movies I do on staff picks. Yep, yep, and I, you know, I think that. It is, it is, I was very surprised that you hadn't seen it, but, you know, listen, all movies, you know, comedy, you need the this, you need the that, but, you know, this movie is definitely one of my all-time favorites. Absolutely, yeah, and I just want to, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, basically doing my season finale here on Staff Picks. This is the last episode I'm going to do for a while, so I wanted to go out with a bang, bring in the Dragon Slayer, talk about how this movie influenced you on Survivor and basically formed your entire TV character, if not life character, right? Because this movie influenced you, obviously, more than just the show. Yeah, I mean, I've said I've said for many decades coaching that if I win a championship and lose, you know, one of the soccer players on my team, ethically, morally, then the championship is in vain. And I go out on Survivor. I didn't go out there to win. Everybody's like, oh, you should have won, and you should have done this. Look at look at the last show I've played. If you research it, I could have won. I could have won a million bucks. I had it in my hand with seven people to go. Easy. And I said, I will not take the million bucks and go against my word. And so I kept my alliance, didn't go against my word. I knew it was, I knew it was coming and people are like, you should win. I didn't go out there to win. I went out there to prove a point to be survival of the fittest, to be survival of the strongest and to show that you can have honor integrity in a dark, twisted, evil world that survivor can become. Yep. And that's when Sophia brought out the howitzers and mowed you down. 
<laughs> she mowed me down. Coach, it was a good death. It was a good death. Always remember that. Okay. I will tell you how I lived. <laughs> I will tell you how I lived on this show. Okay, anything else you want to say before we sign off? I know you got to go here. Um, anything else we forgot to mention here? Uh, probably not. Although I say once again to you, man, you can include this or not, but uh, you as well have changed my life. You know, we have to always look at ourselves in the mirror to see the truth. And I think that that was one thing that I appreciated about this movie was that, you know, it makes you see the truth. And I love looking in the mirror at myself and sharpening myself. And you know, for a fact that reading your wit has caused me to take myself less seriously. And I am forever grateful to you for that. Well, I just, I'm just so happy to hear you say that because for if people don't know what Coach is talking about, Coach was on the show Survivor. He was edited in a very, very over-the-top, somewhat negative way. And, you know, you can make the argument if editing is reality or not. I don't know. It's a whole different topic. But what I do is I write about Survivor, and Coach is one of my absolute favorite I wouldn't say punching bags, but targets, just because his edit was so comical and over the top that I would just write about him. And it was my thing is that I like people hated Coach. A lot of people, you would yourself would admit this, they didn't like you at the first time, right? Yep. That's true. Yeah, so I tried to flip it around a little bit where people would laugh kind of with him, not at him so much. Like, I would like people to appreciate Coach from a kind of a comical point of view, and let's not be so mean about it, so... I wrote a lot of stuff that kind of made fun of Coach and just, uh, I would say, in a fairly loving way. Like, I, he was one of my favorite characters ever, but I really tried to get people to appreciate how over-the-top and eccentric he was. And he himself has said that, I mean, Coach, you yourself said that it kind of stung a little the first time you read it, but it really made you realize not to take yourself so seriously. So, I... Yeah, I read <laughs> Yeah, I read it. I read it, and I was like, "What the hell's happening here, man? Who's this, this freaking guy?" And I was reading it. I'm like, "Damn, that's funny." But it's making fun of me. I'm. This is terrible. What is this? Oh man! Wow, that was. I did say that, didn't I? Wait a second. I just. I did contradict myself. I'm. I'm trying to be straight arrow and trying to do, you know, honor and integrity. And I'm like, wait a second. I just totally contradicted myself, and he caught me on it. And so then. It was at that point where I was like, wow, this is brilliant. And I just, then I started just soaking it up and just, I was like hook, line and sinker. I'm like, I got to read all these entries. So I started reading all the entries. I'm like, wait, I'm on here again. <laughs> I'm on here again. And then of course it was, it, you hadn't released like, you know, the, the top whatever. And so I was like waiting, you know, for the, for the top, well, I don't know how, what it is. I was waiting for you to release the top ones, and damn it, there it was on the top, and I was like, yes! By that time, I was like, I can't wait to read this. I actually showed it to my wife, right? I, like, put it in there, and I I actually read it to her. I'm talking like two weeks ago, because uh -huh. I, I looked at it again, man. I can't help it, alright? I went and looked at myself again. I don't, like, look at myself on the daily, and I don't watch videos of me on Survivor. Hell, I haven't even watched the episodes that I was on side doing it at watch parties but i gotta tell you i've googled that funny 115 many times <laughs> and anytime i need a little pick me up see it's like the best effect because anytime i need a little pick me up i'm like man let me just check out that funny 115 number one entry again and it'll just it'll get me in a really good mood <laughs> well again i just see i feel bad when i write stuff sometimes because i like the goal is to get a laugh but i don't want to be too mean about it like i i do feel bad i have a conscience like my mom raised me very well i'm a nice guy so that's like my favorite thing i heard that you not only laughed at that entry but it like actually changed your life and made you stop taking yourself so seriously so again i our our paths have been intertwined for a while now i've had people say well mario you know coach coming around was the best thing for you ever because it gave you a second writing career so, so, so I will thank you as well. And again, I just so excited that you got to be on my show here. Yeah, that, you know what I will tell you that I'm sorry I'm keep talking here, but I will actually have to fight. You know, they keep calling me. I haven't gone back on. I might have one more left in me. I'm currently retired from Survivor, but if I do go back on again, I'm actually going to have to fight very hard against the self-grounded guy because really nobody wants to see that guy on survivor right oh. if you ask anybody hey if you even though they hated me hey which coach you want to see back they're going to want to see the dragon slayer back but i'm actually going to have to fight against because i don't i actually do not take myself very seriously anymore unless i'm standing in front of a soccer team or symphony and even then i like joking at myself dude i never 
joked about myself in front of a group of people. I never made fun of myself. Like if I made a mistake or whatever, I try to cover it up and say, no, I'm right. Or whatever. I, I literally will be conducting a symphony and like in practice and I'll either make a mistake and I'll cut up. I'll say, man, I just blew through that three, four times. I didn't even see it on the page. And they'll laugh and, you know, whatever. So I'll actually have to fight against that next time I'm on so that I can be that know-it-all dragon slayer that really the public really needs to see back on TV. Yeah. If you're not out there in full samurai armor, then it was a failure. I have already got things picked out, my man. I will not be bringing the battle axes, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's a luxury item. <laughs> okay. Yeah, again, I just want to thank you for stopping by. And again, this is Staff Picks. My name is Mario Lanza. If you uh, need to reach me, staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, and it will be several months because this is our season finale, stay out there looking for those underrated and underloved movies, and hopefully someday I'll be back here to talk to you about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.